0: Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello Channel Pros! Welcome back and thanks for listening. Wow, it's already March 2021. I can't believe it. This year is moving so fast. Probably because we're all so super busy. It's been a really busy time for me at OutSystems, which is why it's taken me so long to get this episode published. We just held our global partner kickoff and doing it virtually took just as much planning, maybe more, than doing it live last year. There's no substitute for the networking and relationship building that you can do face-to-face, that's for sure. But there was one advantage to going virtual, and and that is you can reach so many more people. We had over 1,000 people sign up for our virtual Global Partner Kickoff, whereas last year we were only able to get about 300 there to uh, the big event in Portugal. It was our first annual Global Partner Kickoff last year, so it was fantastic getting everyone there live. But uh, we had a lot of fun going virtual. I just hope next year we can get back together face-to-face. I'd really love to reach a lot more people with this podcast, and you can help me out there too. If if you're enjoying Channel Journeys, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcast or wherever you are listening. All right, well, today's guest, he hardly needs an introduction. He's been a voice in the channel for many years, sharing his analysis, channel reports, his points of view through his channel consulting company, the 2112 Group, which he recently re- rebranded under the name Channelnomics, and that had been the publishing arm of his business. Larry is often the contrarian in the room. He helps us look at the channel business through a different lens many times. And today we chat about the new normal, what's changed, and as Larry puts it, we're never going to actually reach the new normal. A very fascinating conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. All right, are you ready to talk channelnomics? Let's go. Hey, Larry Walsh. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Channels Journey Podcast. Finally uh, getting you on the show. Great to have you.
1: Great to be here, Rob.
0: Thank you very much. And I always ask, where are you? Hunker down. Where's your COVID bunker?
1: You know, in my mind it changes from day to day, but <laughs> you know, physically it's consistently here in Long Island, New York.
0: Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of that way too. It could be the Caribbean, it could be in the mountains. That's a good way to put it.
1: <laughs> yeah, i no, mean, you know, I you know, I've you know the other morning I was running along the Thames in in London and I was like going, wow, I remember going into that pub. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's amazing where you're, where YouTube and an elliptical machine can take you.
0: It's kind of like the movie Inception. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we can re- we can recreate anything. Well, there are so many different things we could talk about in the channel. And and what I always enjoy hearing from you is you you often are the contrarian. You have a, a different view, and you're also much more of a, a long-term strategist and long-term thinker of of what's taking place in the channel and and pushing people to to move forward. So you and I chatted a little bit about this and what's coming and and maybe not just for 21, maybe what's coming beyond that and trends that you've been seeing and things that channel folks really need to start thinking about so i guess that's as close as i'm going to come to framing our conversation today as we start diving into what you and i chatted about yesterday
1: well thanks and i thought we agreed you were going to give me easy questions
0: (laughs) you know when i first when i first started the podcast this is funny larry I asked some easy questions that night, and uh, I was like, hey, what's your favorite food? And then this guy got really mad at me for asking such a stupid question.
1: Yeah, you know what? Sometimes you just, you know, I, I've done this with people on stage. I'm like, so if, if you were a tree, you know, it's a Barbara Walters question, right? You know, if you were a tree, what color would you be? Like, eh. <laughs> you know, your, let's not call it a question. Let's just call this a topic. Because the topic, it, exactly, yeah, yeah, I mean, look, it's a really interesting topic. You know, we we just released our annual channel chief outlook report and its complementary uh, channel forecast report, which is the partner perspective of what's going to happen this year. We could we in the data we saw the scars of 2020. There's a lot of of wounds and battle scars, and I guess you know you know crushed dreams. Is that more in the partner community or the vendor community or both? You know, it's, it's got it. That's really interesting. The partners, you could see the impact of the pandemic on the partners. Uh, there's a lot of disruptions to their cash flow, a lot of disruptions to their overall performance and health. The vendor side of the equation, if you look at it from a year to year lens, nothing changed. There were some telltale signs in it that said, yeah, we, we felt the pandemic. The number of active partners that they had were down. The number of partner-led sales or the partner lift rate was down. But you know, for the most part, they've, the vendors recovered. And a lot of that has to do with the ongoing trends that we're seeing in the market. The People you know, want, to, want to describe 2020 as a crash event that there was you know, an, an asteroid hit and a lot of things went away. That's really not the case. This is a long ball game. We've been playing this, this services and cloud transition game for 10, 12 years now. I mean, since the last recession of 2008, I, I remember it vividly. In 2007, people were like going, ah, cloud, eh, it's a curiosity. I guess we'll, do, we'll put a couple of workloads in there, but eh, it's not a big deal. And then... Financial markets crashed and all of a sudden nobody had budget. Nobody could finance things. And, you know, now we had to like, you know, amortize our expenses. Well, where do we go? I guess we go to this thing called cloud. Wait, we can get cloud from Amazon as well as books. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a long slog. I you know, think about this. What we consider to be what Microsoft now calls three hundred and sixty-five M three hundred and sixty-five Office three hundred and sixty-five. What you know, it's hard to keep up with their nomenclature. That actually started in two thousand seven. It didn't get traction in a meaningful way until two thousand thirteen. Yeah. Now, it, I think it's this year, next year. Uh, you have to go back and look, but I mean, you are not even going to be able to buy a license if a physical license or shrink wrap license for it anymore you're going to have to buy into some level of of subscription. So this trend towards services and what people call digital transformation has been going on for a while. And in fact, I would even say that we have a philosophical argument on my team about, okay, is it digital transformation or is it digitalization of resources? Because digital transformation is doing things differently with, with digital assets. Digitalization being the okay we're going to do the same things the only difference is we're going to be doing them with these tools yeah and we're more in a point of digitalization we really haven't even started the transformation yet and that's the next iteration the next evolution that's going to be coming over the next few years and we see a lot of things changing in the channel a lot of of a lot of value propositions changing a lot of actors changing and um it's you know, for some it's kind of scary. For others, it's exhilarating. And but you know, the one thing that you know I look at and say is that it requires a lot of inspection, a lot of thinking and in, in, in planning. It requires you. Know, there is no annual plan. There's no APOs coming out uh, coming around to to define what's going to happen the next year. We have to be thinking in three and five year increments. Which is really kind of, you know, again, it's a, it's a little unnerving to an industry where you have CIOs that have, you know, that have uh, lifespans of 24, 18 to 24 months where you have channel chiefs that are changing jobs every, you know, 24 to 36 months, you know, and and I hear this all the time from channel chiefs I'm like going, oh yeah, I came, I did my thing, now I'm leaving, I'm going to go do it again somewhere else. That pace of moving around is more disruptive than ever before. The the vendors themselves, they need a stable, consistent direction over a long period to get to this next level.
0: Larry, how how can companies be thinking in these three to five-year horizons when it seems like there's so much disruption and chaos and things seem to be changing so quickly?
1: You know... Yeah, You know, I think it was, you know, to paraphrase George Patton, you know, a good plan vigorously executed is better than a perfect plan later. Mm-hmm. It's really about translation of vision and accepting that it can't all happen at once. Companies that we're working with uh, recognize this, is that they know that there's a future state that they're trying to get to, but they've, they also know that they can't get there all at once. And so we have to think about this and say, okay, our five-year vision will be this, and we are going to drive towards that. And so in the first year, we're going to do this piece. In the second year, we'll do this next piece. And in the third year, we'll do this piece, but always constantly driving towards that future state. And that gives you the opportunity to make adjustments along the way, rather than forcing an issue through a, an expedited process. That may get you to where you think you want to go, but gives you absolutely no latitude to learn, adjust, to scale or contract.
0: And the point you're making is you've, you've got to lock in on that vision, which I think you, you and I were talking about the why. What's the why behind what you're doing?
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, well, I think the why is ultimately where we have to you know have to calibrate. What are we solving for the customer? Is really the issue that that we're all driving towards? The giving up this notion, and you know, and people will dispute um, what I'm about to say, and I've had people say that. Well, you know, Larry, this isn't that. That's really not fair, or that's really not how it all works, or it's more complicated than that. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, but it still boils down to is that our default thinking is the channel exists to make us money, and while that is true. We really need to think about, well, what is it that we want the channel to do? Because it's actually the customer that makes us money, not the channel. Mm -hmm. And so if we're trying to solve for the customer, then we we have to pause and say, okay, if we're going to work with partners to solve for the customer, to service the customer, to support the customer, to engage with the customer, then we also have to say, okay, what is the role the partner plays in that relationship? And it can be a small role or it can be an expansive role. It doesn't matter, but we have to define that. Uh, the expression, when when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. Still, I've heard that for all my life, and I still don't fully understand that. Because <laughs> it's like going, okay, wouldn't you pick up another tool if you needed it? And really, that's what we have to learn as a seg as as the channel segment within our industry is that you know what just because you're holding a hammer doesn't mean you have to swing it partners are tools and you apply the right tool for the right job and that's why you need to go through these iterative processes and you have to you have to always along the way define okay what are you trying to do what are the resources you need to get there how are you going to acquire those resources and what is the best application of those resources
0: so, what are channel chiefs? What are, where are they still getting it wrong? Then, in your mind, given what you're saying,
1: oh, you know, I don't know if they're necessarily getting it wrong as much as they're dealing with inertia. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of resistance when when you start down these paths. You know, it's it's relatively easy for someone within leadership whether it's a CEO or board or COO, whoever, you know, they come up with this, you know, with these grand visions, it's another thing to actually implement them and getting the teams to buy in and getting them to comply and support and particularly in larger organizations. And so a lot of what I describe the job of a channel chief is the general having to fight a war on two fronts. They have to solve for their management or, defend against their management or sell their management, you know, insert whatever, you know, whatever action you want to put there, or, you know, on the other side, they have to face their partners and do the same thing with them. They have to sell the partners, they have to control the partners, they have to troubleshoot the partners, and they are constantly torn between those two extremes. Mm hmm. And so a part of it is is that when they're going through these processes that they have to they have to solve for both of them, and that's a really tough job. I don't think that the channel chiefs necessarily don't know what to do. It's about how to get others to come in or how to get others to figure out you know what they're trying to do.
0: Yeah, when you were uh, quoting Patton, I thought you were going to use that famous Patton quote: "Nobody won a war by getting killed." They- they win it by what is it by, by
1: make sure, sure the other guy gets killed. <laughs> yeah. Make sure the other son of a bitch dies for his country. <laughs> yeah. Right, you man. know, it's yeah. I mean, you know, Patton was, Patton was great for his color, <laughs> you know, there, but there is, I mean, there's a lot, I mean, think about this. I mean, you know, you know, you know, invoke. I'm a, student of military history, you know, as well as a veteran. And I can tell you is that there's a lot of lessons we can learn from some of the, from the great generals of history. And, you know, one of them more so than any is, I think it was, um, you know, other than patenting you know, some of those things, uh, Eisenhower. Eisenhower credited winning the Second World War to logistics and being able to have the right materials in the right place at the right time to accomplish the mission. Yeah, that's one of the things that also that we, you know, we as an industry need to recognize when I talk about thinking about partners as tools. Well, okay, if you are, let's let's call it out because I spent a lot of time working on services transformations, telling to help explain and develop strategies and develop visions for them. Well, okay, you want to be in services. Great. Now, how are we going to get there? Okay, fine. Now you need, you say you want partners. Okay. And here's the role the partners are going to play. Fantastic. How many of those partners do you have today? And how many do you need and where do you need them in order to accomplish that mission? Okay, let's map that out. And so now not only do you have a vision and you have a goal, now you have a plan, but now you also have the material or logistical resources you have to put in place in order to attain that plan.
0: Yeah. And in the past, the tools... Like when I got started in the channel, I probably had two tools in my toolbox. There was the reseller, and then you might have a system integrator, the services partner, and there were pretty clear lines between the two, and that was about it. But that that's not what we see today.
1: Yeah, I don't necessarily. We we look, we have. Um, you know, I invite everybody if you're if you're ever interested in you know sitting in on one of our you know challengeomics internal calls where we where we bat around. You know some of the, the most interesting and stupid ideas, but <laughs> and we we do we talk about everything because we have to we have to go through sort of the Socratic iterative almost sometimes moronic process. And one of the questions we ask is like, because you know, everywhere we go, everyone you know, I was around. I I started in the business when we started using the term solution provider, mm-hmm. and the reason people forget why we why we started using that term is it wasn't because of any you know, esoteric change in the, the nature of the partner, it's because VARs got tired of being called VARs. Yeah. And so they, you know, and I remember when I joined, I was the editor of VAR business, which no longer exists, but it was a sister publication, CRN. And they were explaining this to me. I'm like going, okay, I guess that makes sense. But there was no real reason for it. And now today we, we asked the question, well, why do we call them anything? Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the average, there isn't a partner that we talk to that doesn't have some level of managed services attached to their business or as a part of their portfolio. There isn't a partner that we don't talk to that doesn't have a professional services component. Every partner is, del- is deriving some level of, of revenue from, cloud and managed services. I mean, this year, uh, our new report says 33% of the average partner's revenue come from managed services. I We believe it's a momentary blip, a, a, a momentary downturn in that level of revenue, because it's been pretty steady around 40% for the past few years. Mm-hmm. Mostly due to the surge of hardware demand last year because of work from home. But truth is that these guys are all blended. I yeah, mean, Even the GSIs, You know, we talk about GSIs as being special. They're special because of their size. They're special because of their customers. Capabilities-wise, hell, GSIs are subcontracting to other partners. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They're they're a
0: bigger version of the smaller (laughs) partners.
1: Basically. Basically. So it's (laughs) like whenever we come up and we start talking about, well, what do we call these guys? I'm like going, Bob? I don't know. I mean, we can make something (laughs) up.
0: Yeah, we, we struggle with that. We've just went through it, and we were calling GSIs, GSIs, and we called MSPs, MSPs, and even that wasn't really accurate. So now we call them, we have global partners and regional partners, but many of our regional partners are operating globally. So it's, even that doesn't totally apply.
1: Yeah, no, there's, um. we did a, last year, we did a ton of research on referral in influencers. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to look at, but we get posed the question all the time. It's like, okay, well, we got to figure out a better way of engaging with GSIs. And we looked and we said, okay, it's basically an influencer program. Let's just treat it like that. Not as simple in execution, but right. there's a lot of things you can do with it. And when you start, you know, stop thinking about, well, we got to do this. We got to do that. Look, one of the things we tell tell our the, the companies we work with, you know, because everyone is striving towards... They want to, you know, simplicity or ease of doing business. We're stopping to use the term "ease of doing business" because the opposite of it is difficult to do business, and mm-hmm. how do you, you know, so we describe it as levels of friction. Yeah. So you know, yeah, it's it's great to take friction out of a system, but no system is with no system is is, is without friction. So we look at this and say, we tell our the companies we work with is like, hey. You can be as complex as you want to be. You know, we can make things, you know, inordinately complex. Or we can make them simple. It doesn't matter so long as they read simple and the partner has a simple experience with whatever you're putting in front of them. That's what the measure is.
0: So behind the scenes, you might have some super complex systems running things and analyzing things, but it's got to appear simple and frictionless or have a little friction with the partners complete
1: Wizard of Oz yeah exactly yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah I remember working with CDW and they expressed it in calories they wanted low calorie vendors where they didn't consume a lot of calories to engage with them in the same that same concept of friction
1: that's really interesting CDW saying they wanted low calorie vendors when they want high calorie incentives for to perform the same thing. All right, I'm, going to have to, I'm going to have to, I'm really going to have to, you know, I'm going to, to put some thought into that.
0: I wish I had remembered. I should have thought of that at the negotiating table. Hey, wait <laughs> a second. You want me low calories for me, but I've got to pay high calories to participate.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah I'll, I'll send you a bill for that one. So. Yeah, that's,
0: that, that was worth it. That was pretty funny. <laughs> so are there things that, that uh, vendors can, can do to lower that friction? What are some of the big friction points that you're seeing today?
1: You know, I think, you know, part of it is it comes down to a level of transparency and then systems. Mm -hmm. If you're going to, if you're going to require partners to, you know, to perform some function or some task in order to participate in your program or to be a partner, you know, define it however you want then you really have to have the the faculties and the capacities to execute against that. And there has to be transparency in it. And that's the thing is that, you know, most of what we what we hear in terms of this level of friction is really a, a an inability for partners to understand where they are at any given point or how they're supposed to act with that information. And so if you're able to then translate that into Actionable intelligence on the part of the of the partner, then that removes friction. If you make clean and seamless systems, then that removes part of the friction. You know, we hear, you know, you know, at some some point, somebody decides that they're going to go out and buy, you know, some ERP and apply it to, you know, their channel processes, and they're like, oh, this is going to give us all this great efficiencies and benefits the The application of it, the the execution of it, never turns out that way, and that's what you have to safeguard. If, mm-hmm. the, if you don't need it, don't do it. Yeah, and that's why I mean we and we say look for the bottlenecks. Just figure out what it is. If you don't, if if you don't need it, don't do it.
0: Yeah, just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Yeah, I mean,
1: look, you know, there's we get asked questions all the time um, in our in the research we do. You know, when, you know, we do a lot of bespoke research on behalf of vendors and, you know, they'll come along and they'll say, oh, we'll say, okay, well, we're going to ask these questions. I say, oh, great. Can you ask this question too? i like, sure we can, but why? And they're like, well, we're really interested in knowing what they think about this. I'm like, okay, does it have any material impact on your world? Do you have any ability to execute on it? Or is it just curiosity? oh, it's curiosity. I said, okay, that's wasting your money. Mm-hmm. But it's okay because sometimes that's just the case is that you know you need to know or you think you might want to know it. But if you're putting steps or processes or requirements in place that are just there because you think it should be there, you should think about it a second time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned something to me yesterday that I thought was interesting. We were talking about you know these different partner types and it's hard to put a label on them, but one label that is still out there that everyone uses, and we think of it as a big growth opportunity, is the MSP. Mm. And, and you think that a lot of the MSPs are in trouble with their business model.
1: Okay, fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with the MSP business model. From a sales model, from a revenue model perspective, it, it's, it's a good model. I mean, it's, it's close to a perpetual engine that is we're ever going to come to. The problem isn't the, the revenue model or the profit model. The problem is the operation model. And if you look at the, the average MSP today, and I'm not, and I don't, and I hate to say this because it's, there are a lot of really great MSPs out there.
0: And there are what, over a hundred thousand, even just in our country alone. Is that right?
1: Uh, you know, if there's, I, I, people ask me this question all the time and I say more than one, um, <laughs> because, more than one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, 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 everybody wants to know how many and I'm like going, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> It's great to know. I mean, we know what the TAM is. You know, we could tell you a number, and is it right or wrong? I mean, like there's about 160,000 unique entities in the United States alone. They're not all the same. They don't all have the same capabilities. The reason why the number gets meaningless, at least in my estimation, is because you you, t- you pluck out. Let's just go with your hundred thousand number. You pluck out three random MSPs. They will have different levels of capabilities, different levels of expertise, different types of offerings, different pricing structures. They don't look alike. Yeah. So So, (laughs) from a vendor perspective, you're saying, well, I need MSPs. I'm like going, well, knowing that there's 100,000 really doesn't mean a lot to you.
0: Larry, that goes in that category of, hey, that was just a curiosity question, not really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not not a yeah. question. <laughs> yeah. Back to your original question, though, is that the reason why we, I, you know, I think, and this is an evolving point of view, but this distributed model of selling to MSPs and expecting them to maintain high levels of service in change management doesn't really get there, and there's a lot of there's a high degree of apathy in the market. I mean, by that is that there's MSPs that are out there that, you know, calling them, you know, cloud service providers. And what are they doing? They sell a contract, they they collect a portion of the monthly VIG, and they don't do a whole lot after that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's a, and increasingly we saw this in 2019. Last year we saw a number of examples about it, but they are increasingly targets for, by hackers to want to do daisy chain attacks where they want to infiltrate the MSPs and use them as a jump-off point to get to their real targets. And that's becoming a real problem. Mm -hmm. The the more sustainable model is more of a hub-and-spoke where the partner is the one who sells and manages the relationship. They provide the local professional services and and real-time support. But the real hosting of the service the management of the service is done by the providing vendor. So, I mean, I think that there's, there's, there's probably going to be a shaking out within the MSP uh, model over the next, you know, three years, three to five years. I mean, it's not imminent, but I've had conversations with you know people inside you know the MSP platforms, and they see the same thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and there's some technology segments that. MSP is the channel. I mean that very exclusively that's their channel. The the backup disaster recovery type vendor.
1: Yeah. And that's part of it too is that you know it's like I don't if you're going to buy a service, you know, it's you got to go with all or nothing. The MSPs, you know, getting locked in. I mean, that's one of the things about the MSPs that actually does work is I don't need to be locked into a single stack. I can be I can go to an MSP and get and build a best of breed service. Yeah. You know, so that is a benefit to it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting the, the, talking about where does the, I guess, software reside, where is it located? Our model, and we're just building out our our managed service business. But in most cases, the the software itself is going to be running on our platform, and we use AWS. So it's going to be running on AWS, but the, the MSP will hold the contract, they'll hold the license, and they'll then provide that managed application development service to their end customer. Yeah, yeah. From a security risk, I guess we're protected because there's that that MSP is not the the vulnerability point.
1: I'd say mitigated. I wouldn't say mitigated. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, you know, there's 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 no guarantees when it comes to security.
0: No, no, those hackers are getting smarter every day, so they they always find a new way to.
1: Yeah, and I uh, got news for, and I got news for you. I ain't. So it's all <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole new realm
0: uh, of scariness when you talk to those security experts and and what they're seeing.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, look, I spent I started my technology career in security and I remember, you know, God, I used to have I, I had this, you know, at one point, I don't even know how it started, but this Romanian hacker started talking me up and we, we had a ongoing correspondence over the course of six months. And next thing I know is that I have stolen space shuttle designs sitting in my inbox. I'm like going, yeah, <laughs> oh. this isn't, I'm not really comfortable with this. And you know, and the funny thing was I called the FBI and I'm like going, yeah, look, I got this. You may want to look into this. This guy owns a NASA server and they like, yeah, who doesn't? So it's, <laughs> Oh man. <laughs>
0: Boy, I don't think I'd be brave enough to call the FBI. I'd probably just quietly delete those things and, and hope no one calls me.
1: Well, it's better, you know, in, like it's particularly in contemporary context here. Sometimes it's better to call them just to let them know, you know, and make the attempt. So the last thing you last thing you want is to have somebody come knocking on your door. So
0: yeah, with the FBI badge for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how about partner programs? Talk about that a little bit. So you talked about having that long-term three to five-year vision. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in there, you're going to have a partner program. What are you seeing there? Because there's you know kind of the boilerplate partner program that everyone's run you know a
1: thousand times in their career. Where do you see that going? Mostly in contracts to my company. So, <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, I, you know we like we 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 design and optimize a number of of channel programs every year. There's a lot of questions around what's the shape and of of and of channel programs going forward. You know, one of the things that did emerge from 2020, because again, think back to last April. You know, the world was falling apart. Everybody was trapped in their houses. You know, business immediately ground to a halt. And all of a sudden, people were really kind of like, you know, and it was it was a really unnatural pause. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really thank god that's over right it gave people a little bit of time to think and so i've had this conversation you know chemomix previously 2112 and a lot of companies like ours i've had conversations with my peers and we were all running 100 miles an hour last year trying to keep up with the vendors asking for support on this because they recognize that their programs were getting long in the tooth and they needed they they had the opportunity to think and refresh. Now we've had a few trends. The, the prevailing trend now is the flattened programs mm-hmm. and both in flattened programs. And, and that's a part of removing friction. You know, the prevailing wisdom is, is that if you make them flatter, then if fewer tiers, you know, more transparency in terms of requirements and, and incentives, then you'll decrease the friction. You have other strategies out there around point-based or bespoke where the their partners are basically able to create their relationship with a vendor um, and they're able to unlock different resources and different benefits based on what they do. So there's still it's a guided journey with options, but they're able to you know make choices that are more conducive to their business. So it's no longer a one size fits all. hmm. And then we see some of the programs going in completely, you know, the opposite, you'll call it a, an update to traditional approaches. You know, we've, we're working with one company that has six tiers in their program. And we looked at it, we looked at the operational function for, it and we're like going, yeah, that's, that works. And it works well. So let's not break it. Hmm. Um I think there's a lot of opportunity for thinking through what it means. One of the things that we've learned over the past two years is that structure matters. Structure leads to allocation of resources and responsibilities, and through that, you get results. And when programs don't have formal structures, you have informal results or tenuous results.
0: Maybe you think more unpredictable results, too?
1: Well... If not unpredictable, they are, they are harder to understand and sustain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they are harder to scale. And I'll give you an example. I can't name it because we're currently engaged with them, but we had a, com- we had a, a vendor come to us um, looking for help on something totally unrelated to building a program. And we asked them a few simple questions that basically came down to why. And come to find out is that they didn't have a whole lot of structure, um, a whole lot of, of, of real direction. They were just told Mm to scale their channel. I'm like, well, how do you want to do this if you can't tell me what it is? You know, there's no real standard here. And so we've been working with them to, to formalize a framework, formalize documentation, really rationalize compensation and resources to where they can plan for, you know, okay, well, now we have steps ahead of us on how we're supposed to work and what we're supposed to be doing. Now we know that if this partner comes in, this is where they fit. They no longer have one-off agreements with every partner. So now that there's a level of uniformity so that they can work in more at scale. And it's working for them. It's working for them. It's a work in progress, but so far, so good.
0: Yeah, and it's got to be so much more efficient, too than trying to do all those one-offs.
1: Well, it is. I mean, it, it really, you know, its it, everybody wants to apply, you know, labels to things like this, you know. So call it, let's say this is just an extension of a of, of racy methodology. Mm-hmm. And sure, that could be it. That's enough. You need to be able to delineate roles and responsibilities. And through that, you're able to get the results you're looking for. Not only that, but you're also able to say, well, here's my capacities, and this is where I need to scale, or this is where I need to contract. So, I mean, there's, I don't want to call this science, but it's not art. You know, this is, this is, these are things that can be quantified.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What you've been at this a long time, Larry, in the channel, as have I, what, what really excites you right now? You know, what, what, what keeps you wanting to do this? I need a place to work. Uh, <laughs> you, you need money to buy more whiskey. <laughs> I need money to
1: buy more whiskey. I need, um, I guess now is the time I should say that yes, I, I am the official unofficial spokesperson for an Irish whiskey. There you go. Uh, there yeah. You go. So I okay. I've had my obligation to talk about writer's steers. <laughs> you know, I think really, the th- and I don't know really where where this comes from. To be honest with you, uh, there's a lot of change in the air. Even though I can say over the past two decades that I've I've been in the channel. I can tell you all the things that are different from then to now. I can tell you all the things that are the same, too. And mm-hmm. the things that are the same still outnumber, outweigh the things that are different. Some some people might look at that and say, well, God, that's kind of boring. It's really not, though, because we get to, you know, I, you know my team and I, we get up every day. And, you know, we put on our combat boots and we go out there and we slog through data and we slog through, you know, different, you know, plans and strategies and ideas. And, you know, and it's kind of, it's, it's every day is like a puzzle and we're able to, to, you know, arrange and rearrange that puzzle every day, depending on where we're looking. And it's, that's a lot of fun to us. Yeah. It's a lot of fun to me.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think you know the thing that attracted me to, to the channel was, you know, the opportunity to build relationships and help partners build their business But as you move up and get into more of the the leadership role and you have a chance to work more on the puzzle, that is, that's a lot of fun and the the pieces change a little bit and we're dealing with new challenges. Um, Yeah, that, that I think that's what's the most fun for me now in in my current level or position.
1: I mean, I, I jokingly say sometimes, like I said, I, I started the channelomics almost 11 years ago now. And I jokingly say I did it because I ran out of places to work and Uh, you know and i look around i was like i don't want to do anything different i just want to you know i just want to make sure keep a roof over my head and a bmw in the driveway and i'm happy (laughs) such simple requirements yeah you know what i didn't even bring up my boat (laughs) you know and and, no truth is though is that you know honestly and i and i i used to i used to get in trouble for saying this but i absolutely mean this if i was bruce wayne I do this for free, you know, and I, and I, because I do, I love this. I mean, if I, if I didn't have to make money at this, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Yeah. Just, I, that's how much I really enjoy doing what I do.
0: Yeah. That's a good litmus test of, of, are you doing something you really enjoy? yep, yeah, Absolutely. I'm curious going back, Larry, I, I, one, I didn't realize that you were a veteran, that you were in the military. And I did see that you had a degree in, I think political silence and journalism. Mm-hmm. I expect at that time you had no idea where you're career was taking you or take you down into this channel path.
1: Oh god, no. Yeah. So I was supposed to be a lifer. I'd actually signed up as a career soldier. And I would have, you know, God at my age now, I can't even imagine. But I figured I was probably going to retire from the army as a lieutenant colonel. That was kind of my career trajectory that I was on.
0: Was that something instilled in your family? Did you have a dad, grandparents, granddad in, in the services or where did that come from?
1: Yeah, I guess it. you could say it's a family tradition. My, my grandfather was drafted in the second world war. He was at Normandy. My father served in the air force in the fifties. And this is mostly I, you know, I joined the army just because of two reasons I, I joined the army because I, I wanted to see the world and I, and I couldn't afford school. So I figured, okay, well, here's two ways I can I can do this. And so that's what I did. And then first, I, I just did it. I signed up for four years, but I didn't expect to do anything more than my four and get out. And then I signed up to become, the Army offered me a commission. And then I agreed to it. I I signed up for a program where they're going to send me to school and to become, uh, think they wanted me to become a mechanical engineer. There was a, there was a lot, you know, a lot of military officers are have engineering backgrounds. Their undergrads are in engineering, and then they go on to do MBAs and and other types of uh, of study for their masters. But I had to, I had to abandon that for. Uh, I had to. My mother was terminally ill with cancer, and so I had to leave the military to take care of her. And then once I got out, I'm like going, well, kind of don't want to go back into that. And so I got out, got my degree in poli-sign journalism. I started my career as a newspaper reporter. Did that for ten years. Did a newspaper Lo- reporter. Yeah, yeah. Which newspaper? I started my first job was at the Boston Globe. Okay. I worked on the city desk as an editorial assistant and did some, you know, writing there. And then I worked. Uh, one of you know, one of my career highlights is I worked at the. Um, Salem Evening News in Massachusetts, and when the the Tricentennial of the Salem Witch Trials was happening, I was working there, so I, I was the the lead reporter on all the the Tricentennial celebrations. And like, I had to write about all the witches and all the lore around Salem and all that <laughs> crazy stuff. And,
0: oh, fantastic!
1: Yeah, I had a for different reasons. I did my my newspaper career didn't go where i where I wanted it to, mostly because I just couldn't leave the Boston area, and it's back then it was a journeyman position. You had to crisscross the country a few times to make it back into the Boston globe or back mm-hmm. in, into the New York times or whatnot. Yeah. And I couldn't, you know, for different reasons, I couldn't do that. And so I ended up in, I ended up at a secure a magazine called information security. And that got me into the tech field.
0: And that was, that's just all she wrote. It was, it was a yeah. uh, channels from there on out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really was. In fact, I left there. I was, you know, you know, this is just the irony of my career is that every time I left a magazine, it disappeared. And I'm not sure if it's because it fell (laughs) apart because I wasn't there or because it was already on its legs. I mean, but yeah, that magazine's gone. And I left it. It was still going, it was still humming along when I left, but I left it because I'm like going, you know what? They're going to solve the security thing eventually. And I'm going to have to figure out something else to do. So I saw this channel opportunity and I'm like, well, that touches all the technology. Let's just go there. Yeah, and I honestly, I didn't, I didn't think of it. To me, it was just a stop on my, you know, it was just the next stop for a couple of years of my, on my on my career journey, and then I figured I'd move on to something else.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad you did, Larry. You you've <laughs> been a, a really fun voice in the channel. I know for me, you know, forcing me to think about different things and look at things differently. So so thank you, thank you for yeah. your service in the army, and thank you for your service in the
1: channel. Well well thank you. I, I have I have more battle scars from the channel than I do the army. I mean I, I look I make I make no bones. Look, I was a cold warrior. I wasn't a real warrior. I defended democracy one bar stool at a time. So <laughs> you know I, I, I appreciate people saying that. You know you know I I left a trail of, of empty glasses across Germany. But yeah. You know.
0: Well, you know why I say it, Larry, is because you don't know that. When you sign up, you don't know if it's gonna be bar stools or or you know, bunkers. You just, Mm. you never know what's going to happen. And I, I got approached. My dad was in the Navy and became a pilot that became his career. And uh, I was approached by the Navy when I was in school, they wanted me to go into the, the nuclear sub program. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I, I, I don't, for whatever reason, but looking back, I kind of wish I had done it. I I wish I had put in some time in the service. I think there's so much that you can, can get out of it. And, And I just wish that I'd taken that time to serve my country.
1: Yeah. You know what? It's not for everybody. you know, look, it's it's really an interesting parallel, right? Military is not for everyone. The channel is not for everyone. I mean, you really have to want to do it in order for it to be good. And I think that's one of the things, though, for, you know, to bring it back to, to us, to where we are today. I hear this all the time. People talk about, you know, how do we develop more, you know, young people in the channel and, you know, how do we get them excited about what we do? And I was like, you know, it's kind of like the channel is like one of those, you know, those careers that our guidance counselors never told us about. For sure. You know, and when I sit here and I explain to people, I go, you know, you know, last year during the pandemic, everybody's freaking out over there being no toilet paper. I'm like, you realize you don't buy toilet paper from Charmin. You buy it from Albertsons or Giant or Kroger's or whoever you get it from. That's the channel. Yeah. And when you start thinking about the channel (laughs) as being the logistics of getting something from point A to point B and all those dots in between. That's what we do. I mean, and it's, you know, and, and Dick, whenever I hear somebody say middleman, I'm like going, oh, you have no idea what you're talking
0: about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if anyone in my family to this day knows really what I do, but. I'll remember the toilet paper analogy. What a great way to wrap up the channel. Just just yeah.
1: think about toilet paper distribution. You know, <laughs> Rob, I'm just going to say, I didn't say wrap up the channel in toilet paper. You did. <laughs> all
0: right. Well, that's a wrap. <laughs> Larry, thanks again. This has been a fun conversation. Really enjoyed it. And uh, I wish you all the best this year with channel nomics. Oh, you've got a, a podcast, a new podcast coming out, right?
1: Yeah, actually it's out now. It's called Changing Channels with Larry Walsh. And yeah, it's it's a replacement, you know, since we did the name change at the beginning of the year. So 2112's gone away. We've retired those numbers, lifted the jersey up to the top of the rafters. <laughs> but yeah, we rebranded the podcast and changed things up a little bit. So that's out. Look for it on YouTube and Spotify and you know, everywhere else you get your podcast.
0: That's awesome. I love that title, Changing Channels.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wish I could think about my, you know my team came up with it. I'm like, yeah, sure, let's go with it. So.
0: <laughs> That's a great name. All right, Larry, you have a good one. Thanks again. Thanks, Rob. All right, guys, there you have it. I expected this to be a fascinating conversation, and Larry did not disappoint. It was fun getting to know him a bit better, and I really love his perspectives. He shared on digital transformation. Things are really going to get interesting if we are still actually in digitization and and haven't even reached the transformation stage yet, so we've got a lot coming. You'll find all the show notes from today's episodes, and I'll have a link to Larry's brand new podcast, Changing Channels, there. You can find it at www.channeljourneys.com backslash CJ66. While you're there, be sure to subscribe. And next episode, we're going to change course a bit and talk a bit more about the human side of the new normal, what we need to be doing to take care of ourselves and our teams. That's going to be a really interesting conversation. Hope to see you there. Until then, have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit ChannelJourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends. And be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.